1: So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? We're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK.
2: We are. It's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I
1: wonder. I mm-hmm. think I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's All Sort of Secrets. You did, and
2: in fact that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway,
1: but enough of that. So, join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon, and me as we celebrate the early years with you know that incredible—it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd, it goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. Goes up to 1972,
2: with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff—stuff stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard. Frankly, obviously. Echoes is the big sort of—you uh, know—what uh, is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah,
1: I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now, and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk.
2: And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour.
1: Hello, guy. I had a terrible flood here in this house. On Saturday. Yes, on Saturday, I, I heard.
2: Yes, you. I, I woke. You were caught naked on the stairs by a firewall. I woke
1: up at 6 a.m. and and water was gushing into my uh, bedroom. My wife and I were in bed and um, and it was coming through the sort of fire uh, smoke alarm thing my 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 boy's bath had, had, had burst at the back or something and um, anyway the fire alarm goes off i am half naked running down the stairs one of my sons had let the fireman in i didn't know and a firewoman's coming up and was confronted by me <laughs> with the in my full glory the full brian rick's fast but the one thing i was worried well, i I, no, I was going downstairs to throw myself over my vinyl records <laughs> <laughs>
2: over your blue Monday 12 inch. Over my no blue.
1: Mo- excuse me. <laughs> 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 she never said anything <laughs> like that. Throw yourself over your 12 inch. Um, but this is going to be a difficult one today, isn't it?
2: Uh, it's, well, it's going to be difficult in terms of... I mean, I must say, I used to know, used to know Hooky on it. I used to see him a fair bit. I haven't seen him for many, many years, so I'm quite excited. Well, when I say difficult, uh, I mean in, it's him.
1: so much in his life.
2: Th- there's just... No, it's... A sp- yeah. Because the thing is, you know, we've all written books, but he's taken to it. He's kept... He, he, he's kept writing books. He's written three.
1: Yeah, three. And and the audio books are fantastic, by the way. He's been I mean, absolute brilliant I turn just, of not fr- actually i actually read,
2: read... them properly. You read the... Le- you had leather- um,
1: bound. Uh, Folios, yes, exactly,
2: yeah. <laughs> and and also uh, he's instigated a um, a degree course at Salford University. Is he really? Hasn't he for music management? Yeah, he's, I, I did, oh, he's, he's never. I owned, didn't know that. He's Your never research that. Well, never is stops, incredible.
1: Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm put to shame already. Uh, and let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours.
2: Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. But well, it's a big tune for
3: sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found. Johnny Mitchell
1: down in Florida and brought her back You know what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good man I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London they're brilliant
3: I know you're musicians but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists remember me I'm in a band now <laughs> <laughs> it's called Roxy Music you know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience oh, yeah, yeah, t- t- get t- good yeah. at something when we recorded Arnold Lane we'd done about 50 hours
2: the Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt.
3: Hookie. yeah. <laughs> Long time? Oh my God, don't even talk about the last time. Go on,
1: what was the last time? <laughs> well,
3: actually, no, 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 the, no. the last time was at the uh, the bass player's audition. Um, oh yeah, that's audition right. Wasn't but... It was the one before that that was the one we shall not talk Sorry, about.
1: Sorry, was it the bass player's audition? Did Guy lose?
2: Yeah, yeah, he was the failed. Again, again, again. No, actually... No, because Peter, I do want to uh, mention one thing because I'm actually, I'm not, you know, obviously I don't live in a castle. I'm actually in a dining room at a club where I'm rehearsing to play tonight, but I did actually bring this with me Mm -hmm. because many, many moons ago. Yeah. After you and I were at some party in Notting Hill and you came back. Sorry, that was a Mm bass that you held up, a bass guitar. It was a Music Man Stingray, my lovely old blonde Music Man Stingray. And um, for some, either you picked it up or I forced it on you it and I went, go on, mate. And you played Love Will Tear Us Apart yes, on that bass. You, you made me do yes. that as well. You, you forced Did I made you do that? Do it, I, I, thought, yeah, well, I thought, yeah, like I everything else. Right, yeah. I could barely
3: speak. So, so, so
1: Hookie's DNA is on that guitar. I hope you haven't changed the strings.
3: <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> and, and you, are you, are you? Still... I feel honoured, boys. Thank you for that thought, but I don't think it made much difference. Uh,
1: you, you've been really busy. No. I don't know. Do you live out in Spain? Is that what you, why well, you're there? Or you're on holiday? Uh,
3: for no, a I mean, I've got an apartment that we've a small apartment in Mallorca that we've had for twenty years. Cause, so cause I just um, travel backwards and forwards, which is nice. Because so. I
1: can't believe how busy uh, you are. You know, you are. You, you know, you're really making this. You know, you're putting us all to shame, is what you're doing.
3: Well, I, do you know what? As much as I hate to say it, when we were together as New Order, we did very little. And I found that the most frustrating thing in the world, uh, the fact that we had this wonderful catalogue of people were dying here, and we just didn't play. So when we split up, um, I really went for it. And, you know, uh, I remember Barney once saying to me, you'd play in Beirut, you, you bastard. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like an interesting place, Beirut.
2: Why wouldn't you play in Beirut? <laughs> <laughs> but also, we've all, you know, everyone here has written a book. You wrote a book and then you clearly really took to it because you've written three now. Well, I mean, you're clearly I, very comfortable. I have
3: it? to say, mate, I had three fantastic stories which were a gift. Yeah. You know, to Joy Division, the Hacienda and New Order um, for varying uh, reasons they were a complete story. And I, I mean, it, it was weird because I got offered quite a lot of money um, to do one book. And they, when I suggested doing three, they all said no. So I said, well, I'm not doing it then. You know, I'll, I'll do it on my own. And um, in the end, it was only Simon and Shuster that even would, com- you know, consider letting me do three books. Uh, they, all, they all wanted to cram it into one, which I've just felt
2: wouldn't have done any of the stories Um you know, giving it the proper respect that it needed. I read the Hacienda book when it came out, and I've got to say, if it was fiction, it would be probably the funniest book I've ever read. But being as it isn't, it is just the most...
1: Yeah, I mean, if, ah, Guy, Ritch- if, Guy, Ritchie, go- just if Guy Ritchie slacking. had written that script, you'd go, fuck off. This is, this is like a parody of a parody.
2: <laughs>
3: I, you should have seen the stuff I had to leave out. Um, I, can, I bet. It was, you know, it's, it's, it's strange how you look back at your life, and I know that you two are exactly the same with all the things that you've been lucky enough to achieve and lucky enough to do. It's the same thing, isn't it? You look back at it when you sat, you know, watching telly or something, and you're thinking, oh, my God, did I really go through all that? Yeah. And now we went through a lot of great things with the groups, etc. The Hacienda, I must admit, turned round, and we ended up going through a very bad thing. So, you know, and in a way it was because we'd achieved the good things that we ended up with the bad thing. And Rob Gretton and I, who managed it on our own for, God, 10 years, we we just didn't want to let the people of Manchester down. We'd given them something so good that we decided with copious amounts of vodka and copious amounts of drugs to sort of... Throw ourselves into the dangerous bit, and it now it seems really reckless. I mean, if if my son was was telling me he was doing the things that I were doing, I would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But isn't you know, it strange? I'd, I'd
1: go, at the time, you never have dreamt that if that one day string orchestras would be playing that music, you know, not only Joy Division but but the hacienda stuff that you do with with Mike Pickering.
3: Yes. You know, and and I'm sure again that you two are exactly the same. You know, we spent all our younger lives ripping off orchestras, making, using the emulator, (laughs) you know, to give us an orchestral sound without bothering with the people in the orchestra. So I suppose, in a funny way, it's like it's come full circle, and you are actually giving something back for the amount of, um, shall we say, artistic license you you took from them. But I mean, it's it's nice. Interesting way to look at it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to do because it takes the music to a different... As I've got older, I, I have definitely become more melancholy and more um, philosophical about the whole thing. Not particularly New Order, but definitely the Hastie Ender and Joy Division. And playing the orchestral versions actually fulfils that destiny for me. If you like, you know, I mean, and I'm lucky because as Peter Hook and the like. We can do the uh, the wonderful orchestral versions, and then we can go off and rock our socks off, uh, as we often do. Um, so we get to do both sides of it. And Joy Division, to my mind, actually delivers quite well on both sides. Do you so know, that's yeah, I'm, really. I'm
2: a lucky- yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's nice to have the, the space and the light of it because it's you know being so, on. Our, those records, but they are it's are dark it stuff. You know, it's yeah. It, it, you know, yeah. to feed
3: the lyrics and to pick out. Sorry, from, Gary. Um, one melody and make big thing um, out of that melody sort of enhances to me certain aspects of it. And I must admit that when we did it at the Albert Hall, I mean, you know, it's pe- people, um, in, my son always tells me about the you know, the bad things that people say. And the first thing that people say, oh, he's trying to make money. He's trying to make money again. He just wants more money out of Joy Division. And my God, if anybody ever thought working with an orchestra was a way to get rich, then the uh, yeah. complete... And utterly wrong.
1: What's interesting, Peter, is that there are there's interviews with you in the early days, and I think you didn't fully engage with Ian's darkness at that point. That maybe it wasn't really something that you 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 know you you know you had issues on that with the with the way the first album sat with that the some of the darkness yeah, yeah. in that. But as you say, as you've grown older, you've become more melancholy and in a way tuned more in to what that. Aged soul of Ian Curtis was, 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 was going through at 21.
3: I must admit that you, you're absolutely correct. And you know, the interesting thing about coming from a punk band was that because of Factory Records being completely independent, we were entitled and sort of felt entitled, if you like, and sort of encouraged to be as obnoxious as we possibly could. So they, they didn't feel a need to engage with anybody journalist, radio, I mean, I listen to interviews and oh my God, I'm cringing so bad because you're such an obnoxious little bastard.
1: Um, yeah, <laughs> We're all, we've all done that.
3: Yeah, I know, and it, it, and it becomes about growing up, doesn't it? You know, and um, realising what you've got and what you've done. I mean, I remember at the, when we did Control, there was a launch at the Canadian Film Theatre and uh, I went over to do a Q&A. And uh, the first question said, oh, I'd like to ask Peter Hook, and I'd said, yeah, oh yes, very flattered watching, what, what do you want to know? And he said, why is it for the first 15 years of your career, you wouldn't say anything, and now you won't fucking shut up? <laughs> nice. And, <laughs> oh my God, you know. But I mean, in a funny way, it wasn't a nice way of saying it, but he was being absolutely correct. But the thing is, on those first 15 years, it was much more fun to tell Radio 1 DJ to fuck off, or get stuffed, or I'm not telling you about that, or whatever, that was quite fun thing to do yeah. because when you're in but, you can get away with it
2: but also with i mean in that whole post-punk period the level of the pretentiousness in music journalism was so <laughs> Paul pretty, Marley you know what i mean, talking I mean about yeah. Now. yeah i mean <laughs> ian penman and stuff they were so like who the hell did they think they were well yeah i mean in
3: the, so. <laughs> it was a contrast to the groups wasn't it because the groups were actually in some ways very straightforward Yeah,
2: but having all this stuff laid upon layers and layers and what they're doing and what they're saying, it's like, really, are we? I mean, the one thing I've come to
3: realise is that Gary's absolutely correct is is that Ian um, had a much older head on his shoulders, Mm. particularly show it in many ways, but when you look at his lyrics and when you look at his attitude that he had to the group and stuff, uh, it was much more intense and maybe um, heavier than ours, than mine in Barney's in particular. Steve was always very quiet. Me and Barney were always the jokers. As you know, Guy, you know Barney very well, don't you? So Yeah, yeah.
2: well, I haven't spent him for years, so, to be yeah, I'll,
3: honest, I'll, but... I won't hold that against you.
2: <laughs> Neither have I, mate. I have not spoken yeah. to <laughs> I, don't, I, I
3: don't know what I've Yeah, done. well, I guess, yeah, um... <laughs> oh, are you saying we know what I've done?
1: <laughs> we might get on to some of that, Cookie, but... <laughs>
3: oh, yeah. I'm in good company with you, mate, aren't
1: I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what? It's funny, though, because there are...
2: And I made acrimonious band splits,
1: mate, yeah. with this... But there, <laughs> there's, a, there's quite a lot of... I mean, you're, you're a few years older than me, and I know that doesn't mean anything now, but it means a lot when you're a bit younger and you're looking at bands. But we both had our cathartic moment at exactly the same with exactly the same band. Because when I'm listening to what you would... You know, you, reading your stuff about going to see the Sex Pistols uh, at Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester... That's that's my story for going to see the Sex Pistols at the Screen on the Green. Guy's bored of this story. He fucking hates me talking about the, going to see the Sex Pistols because he never did.
2: <laughs> that's cause he I want to hear, mate. I so like he hearing a hooky people. talk but, but about that it.
3: that
1: changed my life. I was in bands before, like little you know kids bands, and then I went along with Steve Norman and Steve Dagger, and we went into school in in, in the week after when school went back in August, and. Um, formed the band that became Spano Ballet. It was the big kickoff. It changed everything. And that, that was so important to you, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was it was a really weird, inspiring moment, considering that I'd never learned to play an instrument, couldn't play an instrument, and uh, for a long time afterwards, couldn't play an instrument. So the fact that you were inspired to, to be in a group was was actually quite weird. I mean, the thing that I loved is is that the it was, the, again, that attitude. You know, i had been to see, I think I've been to see Deep Purple the week before and Led Zeppelin before that and Santana. So you were used to a certain way of acting that these these groups had. And I remember being really annoyed because Carlos Santana came on going, peace and love, namaste, and all this lot, and said, We are here to play for as long as you desire. Everyone went, Yay! And then he went after an hour and a half and two encores.
2: <laughs> 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 Full of bullshit. The thing about that Pistols gig is because I remember famously for years, in the interview, you've always said, you know, the things, they were so bad, they were so yeah. awful. <laughs> but then you said something really, and I went and listened to the bootleg of that gig. It's really good. Yeah, I know, and they're really—it's amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, Anarchy sounds like almost like the record. It's yeah. incredibly good. I mean, I mean that's I mean, what's I mean. extraordinary. So it's more like you were being sold this thing of wish shit by the soundman. You know yeah, I mean? by the soundman, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt,
3: and without it sounding as awful as it did, we wouldn't have been inspired because the thing that inspired us was the fact that they didn't seem to be able to play. And that seems ridiculous because as soon as I heard the bootleg, I thought, "Oh, this hang on a minute, this is." Weird. Yeah, but by that time, really we were really in. <laughs> we had the bite of the cherry, and there was literally, you know, no going back. And we were a group. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was. It seems absolutely ridiculous that at twenty-one, with absolutely no idea what a bloody bass guitar was that would inspire you to, to do it.
2: But also the fact of just the people in that room. I mean, we you know, wasn't it? It's every single person in that room. Supposedly, yeah. I mean, Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sure there's yeah. been some mythologising yeah. about
3: that. But a lot of them were inspired in the same way. I mean, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's actually quite various, isn't it? You've got Mick Huthnall there as well. Completely mm. different path, completely different music. So there was something about the spirit. Or maybe, you know, it was something the careers teacher at the school never told you, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I remember feeling the same and I've I've tried to think of what that was like, that emotion. The first band I saw actually in that on that night was the Buzzcocks because they were with with Howard, you know, because they they were supporting along with The Clash. And of course, you went on and your first gig was supporting the Buzzcocks. I mean, we ended up making a band, but we would only dream. I think, you know, the Killjoys we supported once or Chelsea we supported once, but the Buzzcocks.
3: You know. yeah. yeah, but you know how, how, how nuts it was there, mate, was that when we did the first gig supporting the Buzzcocks, Pauline Black was there from Penetration and she said to us, oh, I'm doing a gig on Friday. Why don't you come down and play with us? So our first Second gig was the same week. buzzcock support first, then Penetration in Newcastle City Hall on the week after, and the, the, there was an amazing comradeship and a clanship between all the bands, which was quite interesting because that soon faded and soon disappeared because all bands hate each other, don't they? And they're all in competition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You went through that yeah. years as well, and yet I suppose the weird thing about punk was was that. It was the it was the opposite everybody was there to actually help each other at that time and i must admit in I'd manchester of- maybe i don't
2: think london i don't think london had that
3: yeah well in, in manchester yeah i mean and you made a lot of friends that lasted with you for for years and years yeah. and years you know pete shelley without pete shelley um we would not have. yeah the food. organizer wasn't he yeah because i mean he'd sit with us you know, Barney and I, just snotty kids. He wasn't much older. I think he might, may have been a year older or something. But he would sit with us for hours and we'd talk about groups and what to do and what we should wear and where we should do. You know, very little about music, funnily enough. It was always about the other, you know, where do we get a manager from? Where do we get a record label? We, we never really spoke with him about music. There was nothing about how do you write a song? It was like we, you know, we literally learnt that the hard way on our own which i suppose was a good way of doing it
2: and here's the thing so there's you and your mate you go and see the pistols you decide start band. none of you you don't play anything i don't know if anyone else did so did you how why the bass uh barney told me to get a bass (laughs) there you go
0: because he was playing Uh, guitar
3: i went bass bass right bass and punk bands didn't Uh, have two guitars did they ever no, punk bands didn't have two guitars. You're right, guys. Absolutely. The clash, you, the we clash. we, we okay.
1: were so, so, Sorry. <laughs>
3: yeah, the clash. Yeah, the clash. And, yeah, that, you know, that, <laughs> and that It had to be the same as the Sex oh, Pistols. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I went to the shop the next day, borrowed some money off my mum, God rest her soul, and said to the guy, I want a bass. And he said, which one? And I went, a bass? And he said, well, how about this one? And he gave it to me. I said to him... But that's only got four strings. And you make. Can you get me a bit sip. cheaper? And he said, that's because it's a bass, you thick idiot. <laughs> and you know, not wanting to show my ignorance, I went, oh, yeah, of course, that'll do. And uh, so there I was. I was given this um, £30, it actually was. My mother had lent me 35 and uh, Which in those days? A lot of money, yeah. <laughs> you know, strangely enough, for an Echo yeah. copy, yeah. old yeah. copy, it was a lot of money. And. Um, he said to me, do you want a case? So I said, how much are the cases? And he said, five quid. And I thought, oh my God, I am not walking to Little Holton near Bolton from Manchester town centre with a guitar in a case. I said, I'm gonna, I said, no, I'm gonna have to get the bus home. I just couldn't walk that far. And uh, he said, it's all right. He said, I'll go and get you two black plastic bin liners. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I can still remember actually sitting on the bus, holding the bass with two hands, thinking, what the bloody hell am I going to do
2: with this? What what did you... What was the first thing you... How did you approach it?
3: It was easy. I mean, the once my parents stopped laughing, um, I actually went back to uh, Salford and met Barney, and we, we used to spend a lot of time at his grand's house in Broughton. Um, she, she was an absolutely lovely, adorable woman. And um, we used to just mess about in her front room, and in it she had an old radiogram, and uh, Barney being sort of more technically minded said, I bet we could wire this, our guitars up to the needle of the radiogram. And we did, we got the jack leads, stripped them, put them together, put it into his grand's pride and joy, a radiogram. Mm -hmm. And we must've played for about 10 seconds before the whole thing blew up. (laughs) And then, my abiding memory of that one is us being chased down the street by his grandmother with a rifle <laughs> because we destroyed her radiogram. You know, clutching our guitar. So it was a very punk um, story from start to finish. I mean, and then we just knew people in the scene, and basically we were going to gigs. We went to see Eater, Slaughter and the Dogs, Susie in a bunch. Quite yeah. early, actually. Is it? Big you influence.
2: So what were you doing there? But if I mean, if you were, you you were working. Yeah, I was working at Manchester yeah.
3: Ship Canal Company. I was looking after oh. um, all the land on the ship canal. I was a clerk, shiny ass clerk, which was actually quite a good job because it was such a skive that um, you know it enabled me to drive them. I had the van. I drove the van. All the bass players seem to drive the van. I don't know if you're... Does Martin... I've
2: oh, never, driven, never driven the van. I mean? oh, yeah. I,
3: yeah, so a lot of us seem to drive the van. So I used to drive the van and then have to drive everybody home. Uh, and I always used to fall asleep at the lights outside work
1: oh my god
3: uh, outside <laughs> wow. work and um so many people going into work that i would ine- inevitably fall asleep and then someone would have to bang on my window and go okay okay and i go oh shit you know forget where you were and then drive it. so yeah so it was uh it's hard work but, but wonderful wonderful moments well this is know? what's the beauty and of it, this
1: of, of of what we do you know it it a lot of these stories we hear over the weeks we've been doing this it's always music out of poverty and music out of struggle and music out mm-hmm. of families and cities that that where the opportunities aren't always great you
3: know the strange thing is those achievements as well you know those wonderful achievements that you get
1: yeah
3: yeah are amazing that you can you can do them supporting the buscocks we couldn't believe you know that um pete shelley had given us that opportunity to, um, to, to play with them, you know? It was yeah.
1: amazing. I, I just, what's interesting to me a, a little bit is, is your choice of Ian, because, you know, you see the Sex Pistols and we, what, what punk singers were doing at that time was so aggressive towards their audience. It was, you know, confrontational towards the audience. Mm. You choose mm-hmm. this guy, though, that's being confrontational to himself almost. It's all internalised emotion, isn't it? And it's, you know, he has this shamanistic dance that is like no one else. Nobody's doing this. What was it that I mean, came you know, to thing, him?
3: It, it did develop. You know, the, the the thing was is that we met Ian at the punk and got to know him very well because there was like a little clanny group um, that always were there watching whoever it was. And he was just absolutely normal apart from when he turned round and he had hate in orange paint on his donkey jacket and if there was anybody you would imagine if somebody said if somebody spoke to ian curtis for about anything and then you said to him guess what he's got written on his back they would have gone kitten huh? has he got kitten on his back
2: has he got cowed
3: <laughs> um, it certainly would have been uh, you know an orange hate so there there was a I suppose in ian's World, there was a maybe a a pull, (laughs) shall we say, a contradiction in his. Demeanor. He was a really, really nice guy. And we got on with him really, really well. We, we never asked him about his music. He educated us in music very well, actually, because when everybody started saying Joy Division sounded like The Doors, me and Barney were going, who are The Doors? Who are The Doors? i never heard of them, are they from Stretford? You know, and he said, no, no, they're an LA band. I'll lend you the LP. And of course he lent us the LP and we were like, oh my God, we do sound like The Doors. But Ian knew, but never told us, you know, he was just happy that we sounded like the Doors. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it was that odd thing, but you you are correct. I mean, when he started, Ian was very much like Johnny Rotten. Oh, right. uh, our music was just straight ahead, punk, scream, um, and it, it developed, luckily for us, our music and our musicianship between us, considering Barney and I just learnt by playing you know, developed so quickly, it was ridiculous. I mean, we'd only been together about six months, nine months, and we'd already started writing Unknown Pleasures. You know, the first EP, the music was came along so quickly and it came... We, we were so good at writing at that time that we would write a song a week.
2: It sounded like a lot of that was coming. I mean, so much of it seemed really bass-driven. It sounds like were well, you coming in with the riffs first? Do um, we, we, you know what, mate? We've, we've always jammed, which was the interesting
3: yeah. thing because we actually jammed right up until Technique on, with New Order. We would just jam, Barney, Steve and I, mm. and we would record So no one would bring a song in? Uh, no, no, I mean, we they, there might be a song that was worked on more because of the sequences, but nobody brought a song in, no.
1: The sound oh, that, yeah, yeah. of your band was, um, you know, obviously... Barney had this very spacious guitar phrasing that he did, and it's this we woke we'll, we'll talk about Martin Hannett in a bit, I'm sure. But but it really is, as Guy was saying earlier, it's your bass playing that high. I mean, you weren't playing the bass, you were playing. I thought it was a synthesizer when I first heard it as a kid. I think you know, it was uh, you were playing these high riffs all the time. How did that develop?
3: Very kind of you to, ah, uh, we we know, but you know, the thing is, is that to be honest with you. Um, and I've said this many times as well is that Barney had a great amp. He had a Vox UD thirty. I don't know if you've ever tried one. They are as hot as hell. They are very loud, wonderful it's sounding. Yeah, yeah. And he was really lucky to get it. I think he got it for about seventy quid or something. Uh, I bought a Sound City hundred valve amp that was awful. I bought a ten pound bass speaker that was just as awful. So I, <laughs> I,
1: I think <laughs> I think that you could get that from the price, right?
3: Yes, without Is a little Is that a you got go, off so your geography
1: uh, I bought it off my art teacher, actually,
3: who was in a band called the Salford Jets. Uh, yeah. um, Dickon Hubbard. And I still see him now. He's playing with us next year. We we in when we did oh. follow uh, Mike Sweeney, who's a, the uh, radio. Yeah,
1: he's, uh, I, I, I saw Mike um, just the, earlier this year. He's he's uh, t- yeah. he's a DJ, isn't he? At uh, Capital. Yes. Cap-
3: yeah. I mean, Mike Sweeney and his band Smithy was the first band I saw live in 1973. Uh, The willows in Salford, I remember them. I can remember the gig to this day. Um, T Rex, um, Slade, Ripoff, and um, they changed into um, Salford Jets. When I went down to the music shop, I said to the bloke, and like, I'm such a dope." I went in and I said, "I haven't got a bass amp, you know." And he went, "Oh, you need a bass amp?" And I said, "Yeah." So he sold me a bass amp, and I took it home. This Sound City 120, and I had me guitar plugged into it and I had it plugged into the wall and nothing nothing out of it so I found Barney up and I said Barney said lemon <laughs> I said there's nothing coming out of it mate and he's going what speaker did you get I said speaker what's that <laughs> <laughs> so said, it off, you'll blow it up and I was like oh shit so then I had to get a speaker so I read the evening news in the evening news there was an advert for um, a bass speaker 10 pounds Um, buyer collects
2: which in those days (laughs) was still nothing for a fucking baseball
3: and um, I went down and uh, knocked on the door and the door opened and my art teacher opened it from school from Salford Grammar and I went hello sir and he went he said you left school five years ago you don't have to call me sir anymore I said okay sir (laughs) so I bought the speaker and then you know we were off he made me ring on the doorbell sir (laughs) Hi, <laughs> sir. I still call him sir. Now he
0: doesn't half him.
3: And you know, oh, it's, it's one of those one of those things, isn't it? So uh, then we were set. Then we were off, and we were up and running. We had a rehearsal room, and we were off. Barney and I were a, a two piece with our friend Terry Mason on vocals first, drums, um, keyboards. It was just one of those mates that tried everything. Uh, but unfortunately couldn't do it. So we were, we were busy, you know, we were, we were writing and we were, we were enjoying it and doing it all. Um, and then we met Ian at the gigs. Like I said, Ian came along, we couldn't get the bands together because he had a guitarist and a drummer and we had a guitarist and a bass player, so we couldn't get together. So it was only when his band split up that he was able to come and join us. Um, then we were practicing, the three of us together. And what happened was, was that Barney was so loud that I figured out the only way I could could hear the bass was when I played high. And when I played high, I could hear it. And Ian immediately said, okay, that's it, that's it. Play high, mate, play high. And every time we came to rehearse and jam, he'd go, okay, play high, play high. And I'd be like, yeah, mate, whoa. And literally it came from that, you know, and then he'd shout at Steve and go, Steve, do some jungle drums. And he put some guitar over the top, and it was Joy Division, yeah. And it was that easy, you know? I mean, we were so prolific um, with E.
2: But it's funny, because once you got into New Order, then you had all the sequences and everything, and then you had all the nice synths, you had plenty of bass being supplied.
0: Yeah.
2: But the funny thing, so there was nothing at the bottom. Well, so you were just having to drive it all from the top. Yeah, I mean, it was. To
3: be honest with you, the the songwriting almost ground to a halt once we lost Ian. Um, We we just didn't have the confidence in ourselves Mm -hmm. to finish anything uh, because we were so used to him being the figurehead and him saying, "That sounds really good," "That sounds bad." Let's work on this. Let's work on that. You know, he he didn't write the music, but he was the orchestrator. Yeah, he was. Mm He was, picked it out and did that. And once we didn't have him, we
2: were lost. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: This episode of Rock On Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over
2: 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria,
1: antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest,
2: it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the
1: road and you're short of time
2: or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals or you're getting your podcast together you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste.
1: It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers
2: and the rock on So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and
1: five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. You've got three distinct stories, and we could really have three episodes with you. Because and I uh, but <laughs> yeah. and we'll just you know, I don't want to race through any of it in many ways, but but I do want to say about the first time I saw Joy Division, which was on um, something else, the TV show.
0: Yeah.
1: And no, yeah, yeah. and I just absolutely fell in love with with that, your look, your sound, what the drummer was doing, the sound of the drums, with the, he was using the electronic drum. We were all roughly, mm. at that time, at that same time, I was going down to the Blitz and that was starting to happen, that club scene, and we were listening to Electronica. It, it, I first thought introduced to Kraftwerk, but it seems like you guys had already picked up on it up there in Manchester. You, it, there was a sense of the Germanic kind of euro yeah i mean dance we, music going into it, stuff
3: yeah i mean again you know ian was such a great educator in the fact that he'd come in each rehearsal with a different lp for us to listen to which we'd listen to and share amongst us so we, we you know he'd bring you can he'd bring you faust faust tapes mm. he'd bring you um craft the doors Iggy Pop, velvet underground and to us, it was like, whoa, we'd never heard any of this stuff, mm. Barney and I. It was like a revelation. And it was amazing. Now, Steve heard it and knew all this music. He was in the Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa and all that. Well, he was a great kraut rock drummer. Yeah, you know? yeah. And but He, he, never, I mean, he really he never had that thing. It. Yeah, he didn't push it on you. You know, Ian pushed mm-hmm. it on you. Listen to this. Listen to this. Right, Listen right. to
2: this, you know. So
3: we, the influences were easy to pick up from from then on. And it was like a you know, I mean it was a revelation really to hear that music for the first time at that age, being as inspired as we were. It was literally like having a rocket up your ass.
2: Yeah. Then you add Hannett
1: <laughs> I mean he is a legend Martin <laughs> Hannett, isn't he? I mean it you yeah, know yeah, a, I, I, mean, mean, I mean a beast a beast of a, of yeah. a man in many ways. Um and, and incredibly rude to you guys I would have thought. But somehow you listen to these those records, especially closer, but you listen to those records and the beautiful reverb and the space that he's created and with this small drum sound this wasn't a punk band anymore was it
3: no and we 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 were we were we thought we were but he listened to it and like a good producer should he just thought oh my god i can see something that these idiots can't see and he he did, and I'm very, very happy that he got his own way. <laughs> Me and Barney didn't get ours because we would have ruined it. If our, our record would have sounded like Never Mind the Bollocks or The Clash. He, he was a very, very difficult character to work with, which, as he went into further into his drug addiction, became worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. His his character was that musicians should be seen and not heard, which was quite ironic because he was a musician. <laughs> and I don't know where he got the that's, that's tricky, that one. Yeah, he's a bass player, <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it was an odd thing, but, my God, he was difficult to work with. You know, I mean, my, a great friend of ours, actually, who used to work in Manchester, used to say to me, he said, you can take any band that love each other and have loved each other for 20 years, you can put them in a studio with Martin Hannett, and within an hour, they will be at each other's throats. Ah. Oh, my God. <laughs> That, that was what he was like, and it was absolutely true. And I mean, and the thing is, is that when we first went to work with him on Digital and Glass, which were two fantastic songs, actually, yeah. um, and mm-hmm. quite rightly, he did say that, you know, Joy Division were a gift to a producer because of the songwriting. Um, he, he was like a wizard. We couldn't believe what he was doing. Most of the time, we had no idea what he was doing. Um, but to watch him was absolutely fascinating. Now, the thing is, is that I must give a shout out to John Briley, who was the engineer at Cargo Studio. All oh, right, yeah, He yeah. was absolutely fantastic in his own right. So Martin had a very good right-hand man with him to do what he did. The instrument that he loved most, which I'm, I'm sure you both know about, was the echo plate, which was the big wall-sized echo thing, units that he used to get in the 70s and 80s. That was the one that he used the most. He he pioneered the research into digital delays. AMS, with AMS. He, AMS, yeah, yeah. He actually used the first AMS digital recorder, um, which he used quite well. He had a few other bits of kit that he used very very well. But yeah, I mean, he 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 drove us mad, and we drove him mad. But he was he was a genius. Ah, he, he was frozen. he was a wizard, you know. And we were. I mean, he he he, he always said about Joy Division. He always said one genius and three football fans that was how he described
2: us
1: <laughs> and there's elements of like you know sort of Floyd with you in the second album
2: well I was going to say I was going to bring this because what's funny is because you know as, as if you know that Gary and I are in this band with Nick Mason it's not a million miles from what you're doing going out playing this, the early Pink Floyd mm-hmm. stuff It right, hasn't movie. really been played but every- but I've always said, right, I'm on record as, this, as saying um, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun is the greatest song that Joy Division never wrote.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Martin was... I mean, considering we did it so quickly, that is the creaky thing. You know, the Unknown Pleasures was written and recorded in six days. Wow. Right? Now, um, unbelievable to think that we were overdubbing and Martin was going around kicking walls, recording the lift, as you said, um, banging flight cases, smashing glasses all this stuff in those six days, you know, that we did it. We did it over three weekends because it was the cheapest way that Tony Wilson, it was the only way he could afford to do the, the LP with Factory. Uh,
2: so, yeah, I mean... We, that must have driven you mad, going out and having a whole week of doing whatever, well, we, doing, back in your ordinary life, waiting to get back he in. He kept so. us
3: up all night, you see. He only works at night. Yeah. So we'd start at 6 o'clock, finish at 7 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning before the next band came in. And we, by the end of two days, were completely lally because we'd never done anything like that before. But again, you know, we didn't know what we were creating and probably it was a good thing that we didn't. Well, I
1: have to say, I think digital is, is you know, that's a piece of art in, you know, it's as close A-tron. as pop music ever gets to art. I mean, lyrics are incredible.
3: Yeah, I mean, it should have been a single, but, you know, in a typical Factory Joy Division way, we didn't even pick. But record. this is
1: what's so incredible about your story is that you became a magnet. It starts off with you and Barney and you become a magnet for the great artistic minds of, 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 of Manchester. So, so suddenly there's, there's, you get Ian, then you get Tony Wilson, then Pete Savile comes in as well. And
3: Yeah, I mean, Martin and Tony Wilson, their attitude with the... You know, I mean, there, there is a way of thinking, isn't there? And I'm sure, you know, we're, we're all musicians here, we, we write songs. But if you've got great songs, really it's going to take someone really bad to fuck it up. And we were lucky in that we had problems and we had bad happenings, if you like, but it never, ever detracted from the music. And the thing is, is that you you do have to remember, it was quite strange that Joy Division were only professional for six months before Ian died and they finished. Throughout Joy Division's life, I never earned a penny from Joy Division. Nothing. Yeah. And... It's absolutely the strangest thing in the world, you know, to have something that you work so hard for. And the reason it was hard work was because you were starting from nothing. And then to have it all so cruelly taken away from you with Ian, if you like, you know, the fact that not only had you lost your group, but you'd also lost a great friend, fantastic frontman, a wonderful colleague. Oh, it was, it was.
1: Were you you angry at that time?
3: Yeah, I mean, you went through stages. I mean, we took a lot of strength from being together, it has to be said. The first thing we did after Ian died was once we'd realized what had happened was we spent a lot of time together and that helped a lot. And it was a very, very, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 now it seems absurd. It seems absurd now that we don't talk to each other with all the things that we've been through, (laughs) because you should be able to sit there in a pub with a pint going, oh, my God, do you remember that? Because we have, you know, achieved to rise as we did from the ashes of Joy Division and then to watch Joy Division insanely when we made New Order a success, watch Joy Division come up like the horse coming up until it's neck and neck at the you know and then all of a sudden Joy Division catches you up as new order and then in sometimes overtakes you it's it's absolutely bizarre and it was the strangest thing i mean i still would love to know why ian committed suicide i think i do have you know i'm i'm, I'm, I'm well informed shall we say to say the least but it, the 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 thing that's awful about suicide is is that you can never explain it, you can never understand it, and it's always the people that are left behind that have to do that, mm-hmm. and you just never know what happened. It's happened a lot many times since. You know, I've lost a lot of people, um, right? mm-hmm. some very close friends, to suicide as well, uh, and it's never easy. But yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that his legacy lives on and his gift. And to be able to play it again. I mean,
2: you know, we never used to play Joy Division. You literally just finished your, what is, you know, now known as as the Magnum Opus, and it was never played. That would have been some sort of, yeah, some sort of closure or something, at least, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, but we, we, see, we
3: made a deal between ourselves, sat around the pub, going, if any one of us left, then the band's over. (laughs) You know, one of them deals. And, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so when Joy, when Ian left, you know, the, the band was over, and we were happy with that. We were happy that it was over. Um, we, we, it would never have crossed our minds in a million years to, you know, get another singer and carry on. It just wouldn't have been there, and I don't think it would have been right, and I don't think it would have the effect on people as it, as it does now. If you had have done, if you had have carried on in some other,
1: well, I think also you probably did found it would have found it hard as those young men and normal young men to have channeled what Ian was trying to do and say in those yeah. lyrics, and, and it's, it took you decades, really, before you could stand in front of a mic and think, I think I've had enough life experience now to know how to sing an Ian Kurtz lyric.
3: Well, it, it didn't actually work out like that, mate, I'm sad to say. I mean, I had three singles lined up in 2010 for the simple reason it was 30 years of Joy Division, 30 years of Ian's life, as I prefer to call it. And um, I couldn't celebrate it with Barney and Steve. And I just thought that it was ridiculous that as people, none of us had ever celebrated anything to do with Joy Division, ever. Not one year, five years, 10 years, 25, 30. And I thought, oh, man, this is ridiculous. And it was funny because I was touring as a DJ with the Clone Roses. People were coming up to the Clone Roses and they, they were saying to the lead singer who was from Glasgow, Ian, Ian, sign me shirt. And he'd go, okay, give me that. <laughs> and I'd be like, fucking hell, you know, they don't even know that he's not Ian Brown. I thought, this is really weird. And I said to the manager, he said, you know what? This makes me want to form the Salford Joy Division and get out there and play the music because I've not played it for so long, 30 years. You know, it's ridiculous. And he went, listen, you can't be in your own tribute band, okay? And I thought, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> So I suppose, in a funny way, I am in my own tribute band. But I had three singers lined up, and as soon as I talked about forming a band to play Joy Division's music, the keyboard warriors, shall we call them, were out in, All and right. they scared off the singers completely, immediately, almost. Three guys who had known for years. No, can't do it. Too much bad feeling can't do it, can't do it, death threats, dad, da, da, and all this stuff. And I'm going, ah, shit. And it was Rowetta, God bless her, that said to me in the end from the Mondays, she said, okay, you're going to do it. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, my God, you are joking. And I sort of realised that if I wanted a career back, I love DJing, don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't like playing your music. It wasn't like playing your own music. The New Order had been split for three years and I was missing playing terribly, I really was. Um, Our relationship was getting worse between us. So there was obviously no, you there was gonna be no reunion. And yeah, I I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna have to do it. And we practiced it. And luckily because my voice is in the same register as Ian's, um, I was able to get away with it. And I had six very, very difficult months of um, quaking and shaking, um and the wonderful thing about it was being able to get my son to play bass. So there's two base you know, players the game, play yeah? bass players in the band. Yeah, I mean, and you know, to get him.
2: All still at the top. There's still no <laughs> bass. It's all
1: still.
3: Yes. He's actually uh, with the Smashing Pumpkins this weekend. His bass player for the Smashing oh, yeah, cause, Pumpkins. Because B- Billy
1: Corgan played, played for you oh, for wow, a about- while, didn't he? That's right. Yeah, yeah. he
3: did. Yeah. I mean, Billy was very, very magnanimous and very generous uh, with his help. And, you know, the thing is, is that, again, as, as we all know, that the only way you can get ahead in this world is to work hard, isn't it? You have to get out there and you have to do it. And it was a delight to do it. It was a delight to drag the gear around. And it was a delight to play all those shitholes again work your way up and then you know to get to Brixton Academy um, and to get to selling out Manchester Apollo and the bit and being to do the classical has, has been absolutely wonderful and the thing is is that in, to me I am the biggest joy
2: division fan that's it's, very clear you know I don't want to blow smoke up because A you sing it fantastically and there was that you did that brilliant thing that in the the, the lockdown festival thing when you come out and you did <laughs> love that. and you did love "All Tear Us Apart" and you got the bass on and I'm sitting there going, "Come on!" and you never played. Yeah, I did do the it, piano. Music. <laughs> and McLaren did, yeah.
3: Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that I'm used to through Factory and Tony Wilson and Rob Green being being mad being daft doing anything you want you know this wonderful world that we're in allows us to show our bad sides and our good sides and our daft sides and yeah you know i mean i will and everybody always says it to me like it's a bad thing i'll do anything i love it i love this business i love what i do i love playing and you know again as i was saying to you before you know having my son along and playing unknown pleasures with him when he was the same age as i was when I played it first, uh, that was the yeah he yeah, yeah, yeah. played Unknown Pleasure when I was 23. And that gave me such yeah. goosebump Hearing the song come
1: together. Once the song was together, it didn't have that effect. I'm going to talk about Tony Wilson because you know, I'm fascinated by this scene. And if people don't know about it, he's, he's an extraordinary character because this is, this is like some wacko guy presents a, a, a tea time show. And he ends up also having this other show, you know, which, which the Sex Pistols were on. And what's the name of that show guy? I've forgotten, what was it? Was it so book? it goes. And um, he's a real scene You know, there's something special about this man. I mean, t- t- how do you capture him in a nutshell? But hang
2: on, just also, just to point out, what's different for us is, is that all you guys in Manchester, because it was Granada thing, you'd known him as this sort of cheesy TV personality for years. To us, he You're was right. this scene star and then this sort of situationist McLaren esque mm. prankster. Mm. I mean. But, you, but to you, he was like, you know, <laughs> yes. Frank Boff or but something. we had <laughs> been into
3: him, you see, at all the gigs. We'd see him at the gigs. And Ian. Was was quite incendiary when he got frustrated, and when we were being compared to the other groups in the scene, shall we say, that weren't doing as well as you know, slotting the dogs or um, stopper jets, he'd go up and blame Tony Wilson. Your <laughs> sure fault, <because> it <laughs> you bastard. You know that scene in um, uh, Control actually happened, where Ian went up to Tony and called him, "See you next Tuesday," because he hadn't put yeah. us on his show. I mean, he, and we were dragging him off, you know, going, "Ah, Tony Wilson, stop it! You know, you're gonna, you're gonna kill our careers, dox, whatever." So, yeah, I mean, he 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 was instrumental in spurring people's imagination. Uh, Rob Gretton then approached Tony afterwards and sent him a tape. Tony had seen us on the night, but it was a terrible night, stiff Chiswick challenge. Um, we, you know, it didn't work out. Uh, but
1: yeah, and it, it was like that. I mean, did Factory exist it's, at it's, that it's, point? Factory Records exist in any yep. other way?
3: No, no, no. I mean, the the oddest thing is, is that my mother used to take me shopping on Regent Road in Salford every Saturday afternoon. And we would go in a shop. And I always remember this tobacconist where she would buy her cigarettes. And uh, the guy always wore a really brightly coloured dicky bow in a suit, (laughs) which was very unusual for Salford in those days, right? And she would always say, when we were leaving, (laughs) and he'd give me a lollipop, she'd always say, say thank you to Mr. Wilson, Peter. And I'd say, thank you, Mr. Wilson. And it was Tony's dad.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh,
3: (laughs) So I knew Tony's dad a long time before I knew Tony. His dad was a lovely man. So the thing is, is that when we met Tony, he was uh, university educated. For Rob Gretton to realize, Rob Gretton, our manager, was the bridge. You know, considering Rob Gretton was 25 when we were 23, uh, he'd never managed a group. He really did have balls of steel to be able to act and do what he did. And he bridged the bit from us to Tony and the conversation of Tony emulating rabid records, which was what Slaughter and the Dogs were on. Yeah. Tony's ideas were really interesting. I mean, you know, it was very unusual. I mean, if you go and see the exhibition in Manchester, I hope the pair of you do get a chance. Um, Mosey's celebrating the first 50 releases of Factory Records. Oh, wow. And oh, yeah, wow, yeah. Diverse. Well, we're playing. We're we're playing. We'll go. Yeah, the diversity in those first fifty records is absolutely incredible. I mean, the guy really took chances, and the wonderful thing was was that he would never um, force you into doing anything you didn't want to do. And if you'd ask his opinion, he'd just go, "Darling, you're the musicians. Just do what you do. It's great." And we were like, oh, right, brilliant, you know, and then we'd just go off and do what we were going to do. Martin Hannity was a little bit of a glummer (laughs) attitude than that. (laughs) So it was a wonderful melting pot with Pete Savile. Alan Erasmus cannot be ignored. He was like stabilising, if you like. Um, and Pete Savile was given free reign. You know, he was just...
2: But what was Pete Savile doing when he was discovered? What what was he designing before? He he
3: he wasn't doing anything. I think he was at college because we used to see Pete and his beautiful girlfriend that used to dress like a cowgirl in the Roxy room at Pip's. So we knew we didn't look much at him, but his girlfriend used to get a lot of attention because she always dressed in cowboy boots with a little cowboy shirt. And you know, she she stood out a lot. And that was his girlfriend. I didn't find out till years later. So he was on the scene as well, and he was going to the um things and he just asked Tony if he could do a sleeve. And Tony madly said, Yes, darling, of course you can. And that was, and it was as simple as that. I mean it was very homegrown it was very natural um it certainly wasn't planned you know i mean i remember the factory sample i remember being asked by tony to go up and put them all together and um, joy division went up and put them all in the covers pasted it all together and we got paid 50p per 100 i think um
1: each but i feel about tony Wilson is—he he was kind of doing leveling up way before Boris, wasn't he? I mean, he was—well, abs- 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 you know oh, Please, I mean, please, yeah, exactly. But but you know, he was—he was really about trying to promote Manchester as 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 the centre of music, as opposed to London, you know, which we'd all been looking at before.
3: He, he was fighting a losing battle because he was actually promoting Salford <laughs> as the <laughs> centre of
2: music. That's the funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, but the, uh, you, you don't realise until you go and spend time in Manchester that actually everyone you know and practically everything about Manchester is actually Salford. Yes,
3: Hustcocks were a Salford band, Joy Division were a Salford band, New Order were a Salford band. Yeah. We, we were lent to Manchester and, you know, we, we are and I, I do feel myself very
2: much an ambassador for, for Manchester in, in the world, if you like. My son has, by the way, just this week, has just started at uni in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that. And the first thing anyone says, oh, amazing music. It's like Manchester is this world capital of music, thanks I, to I all feel you it group of people. Well, it's absolutely done it.
3: I, I feel it was. I think there's been a certain amount of levelling up, as Gary said, in many ways. I think you know, sort of at the end of Oasis, maybe just where the Cortinas came, um, I think it's sort of Elbow and the Cortinas were about the last, I think,
2: yeah, but it's but it's fixed. It's a fixed point. Not so much. It doesn't matter what happens now. It's fixed yes. as this as this point in the British musical history map. You know,
3: absolutely. And I think that the hacienda, you know, doing what it did for acid house yeah. in Manchester, and you know the legacy of it being in the right place at the right time, and New Order um, ridiculously funding a, a, a disco for a whole city for seventeen years um yeah it, it sort of earned you your place in the world i mean it was great you know you, you'd get in a taxi in you know brazil in 1988 and 80 88 to 96 and you'd say the guy'd say where are you from and you go manchester and he'd go oh manchester united hacienda yeah. happy mondays yeah. you know and you're like whoa yeah. i mean it, stone roses god it was incredible yeah. and it yeah. It, it it's a wonderful thing. I mean if you look at the Stone Roses, my god, the Stone Roses were never particularly successful from a financial point of view, God bless them, until they reformed in 2000 and when was it 10? 2012. God, it's it's ridiculous. We we Manchester bands seem to go through a lot of
1: troubled times and yet still be the music of the world. But, but Hacienda, the, has the yeah. I, I I think because we probably were influenced by, because I remember going to New York in 81 and going to Dance Yeah. Africa Bombarda playing there. And I, I think that was yeah. probably what you were trying to achieve with Hacienda, wasn't it? This great big new sort of warehousey.
3: Yeah, we were. But I mean, the thing is, is that we achieved the opposite. <laughs> we, we were going to um, Dance and hurrahs and all these Paradise, um, gara. Garage, yeah, yeah. All these really dark clubs that were just like a sound system in a big space. Um, Not many lights, very, very um, industrial feel to it. But And we came back with that idea. I mean, the biggest idea we had was that people like us had nowhere to go. And Tony Wilson was quite right in saying that we are building this club for people like us because we have nowhere to get together which was absolutely true at the time. So we overdesigned it and turned it into something else. Ben Kelly um, took it into another sphere. But, I mean, that aspect of it is just as important and became an influence on not only fashion, but also culture in club land. You know, many, many, many clubs Ministry all around the world. Ministry of and, and- cetera.
2: No, but there's also, there was a whole other side, wasn't it? Because you had all the, it's like, for this where like Nick Cave would play... And, you know, you had the all early your days. rock bands. All yeah, your, I mean,
3: for the, first, bands, for the yeah. first five years, it was a venue. And now Rob Gretton had a very um, interesting um, idea. His idea was to treat the bands when they came to the Hacienda the way that you would like to be treated when you went to another gig. So he would pay them more. If they said, well, we want 100 quid, are we not coming? He'd go, well, I'll give you 150 they go, oh, all right, then, well, we want two bottles of beer. And they go, well, I'll give you two crates. And they go, oh, right. You know, they'd never come across any attitude or a place like this in their lives and that was how the hacienda was run which has probably ended up why we never made a bloody profit he was right in that aspect because he thought that that goodness if you sowed it would grow i mean as we know as musicians it's so competitive supporting someone or playing with someone that you're never going to get treated because they don't want you to take their place but yeah <laughs> you know and he did actually actively pursue it and everybody wanted to come to the hacienda they wanted to come to the hacienda simply because they got paid more and they got treated better mm-hmm. at the hacienda it was it was no you know no contest and some of the i mean i worked at the hacienda as you know if you read the book uh, i used to work there for a tenor
2: i love your thing about being on the door with a, a vodka well, orange every that, hour and then it's every half an hour then it's every 15 minutes
3: that, that, that was a little later i used to want the, the yeah.
0: groups gear
3: in and do backstage security So, I could pay my gas bill. Um, And that was after Blue Monday, if if anybody would believe it. But yeah, so I worked there for a tenner So I got to see all the bands. You know, I got to see Nick Cave play. It was wonderful.
1: You know, bands like what you were doing with Norda and, you know, ourselves, when we were making these 12 inch records, I mean, we made them for places like, you know, Camden Palace, Rusty Egan DJing down at. Yeah, of mine, so what, of what we were actually doing was 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 also killing ourselves because we were beginning to big up the dj and and as the, by the time you get All to the right, end of the 80s no one's even wanting to see a band they're thinking actually if i just go and see a dj i reckon i'm the most important person in the club not the band and hacienda mm-hmm. were really at the well, center of that weren't they that dj culture as, as acid house came in. yeah on.
2: i mean it was rob
3: that came up with the idea of overpaying the DJ so that he had a loyalty to the club. And so that, that DJ who was, you know, big in acid house, like Graham Park, you pay him a thousand pounds and he wouldn't play anywhere else in that month. And he'd be just at the Hacienda. So that was, it was quite a, um, a clever idea to keep the specialness if you like. So Graham could only play at the club. And he couldn't play anywhere else. And that that was why he was overpaid. Um, What happened then was, was that that kind of rocketed and became... I mean, and it's still ridiculous now, you know, the amount of money that a DJ can get for playing your record... it's it's,
1: yeah it's nuts isn't it it's just one of those strange i'm saying nothing pete tongs one of my best friends so
3: (laughs) i I still use cds you see and everybody laughs at me because i just cannot bear to use a usb stick and run it through a computer i do that all day you know and i just like oh man but the the story is you
1: you ended up with this amazing successful club that then you still can't make money out of because the gangsters move in
3: well, yeah, I mean, believe you me, mate. We'd made a lot of mistakes before that. <laughs> you know, it seemed to be um, more and more and more and more. Twenty-five year lease on a club. You know, it was doomed from the start. Borrowing from the brewery, so you couldn't get a discount when because of Ben Kelly, it went over budget and stuff like that. You know, you there was a lot of problems to do that.
1: And you also, I mean, you, had you, know, a, you had you were paying for everyone's drinks while you were on tour in America, weren't you? <laughs> Yes, we, we came back and found out
3: that all our friends had tabs saying well, Huckie said it was all right. And, you know, the manager would go, oh, well, he's not said anything to me. And he's oh, no, 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 Huckie said it was all right. Bernard said it was all right. They all had these tabs on the bar. And we were like, no, we've not said this. What are you doing? But again, it was very, um, yeah, it's very mank. You know, that, that that's is, is is and that cockiness is is very mank. Yeah. So it added it just added in some ways to the allure of the place. I mean, the mo- the one thing that I found absolutely unbelievable was that Rob Gretton, throughout the seventeen years of the club, would never have a free drink. He insisted on paying for every single drink he had in that club. And I said, Rob, you must be one of the only people in here that's paying for his drinks and you own it. No, I'm just going. What? But that's the type of guy that he was. You know, that's the if he.
2: Yeah, he was a he good lad.
3: Rob. He was
1: going to yeah. do it? Is he, is he gone, it, it, Rob? Is, is Rob gone? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, he's yeah. been
3: dead a long time now. He was the uh, the first one of us to uh, to go. He he, he yeah, lived no, he was, life he was, to the full, no. we shall say.
2: Just to jump on a bit because we've done is something really, I really haven't really heard about is because you're talking about wanting to do anything. We're talking about clubs and uh, and, and not being scared to do anything. How on earth did you decide that you should sign with Quincy Jones?
1: <laughs> what, sorry, I missed that guy. What part of it, this, Peter, what history, part of this history is, is Quincy Jones in? New Order
2: signed, to, I, I think only ever English band or whatever, signed to Quincy Jones's label in yes,
3: America. Yes, yeah, we did, yeah.
2: At Quincy's request. It was the most bizarre thing
3: and I don't think any of us could take it seriously for a long time. We'd been trying to get a licensing deal, which we'd had with Rough Trade, but Rough Trade had got into real problems in America. So we were looking for a licensing deal, not only for New Order, but also for Joy Division. And it was after Blue Monday, so a lot of American labels were interested, but every time they met Tony... They just couldn't handle him, and they couldn't handle our manager. I remember um, Mo Mo Austin. We went into we, okay. the, uh, we went into a party at, at Warner's, where they were trying to get us to sign.
2: Mo Austin's the big wheeler yeah. uh, at Warner's. He was the
3: head honcho the of Warner Brothers Records. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah, man, yeah. and um, Mo Austin yeah. was talking to me, and he, he said, "Where's your manager, Peter?" I want to meet him. And I said, oh, um, he's over there. And Rob was lay flat on the floor with a joint and a (laughs) big cloud of smoke. And I said, he's there. And Mo Austin went, he is your manager? And I I was actually quite proud of (laughs) him. It's great, isn't it? You know, and so, I mean, the, the crossover of attitudes of Tony and Rob was quite difficult. And really, it was only quest records that had just got a licensing deal. Mo Austin had given Quincy Jones a budget to put out whatever he wanted. He was probably a very very powerful man himself Quincy Jones then.
2: This is post thriller, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I knows. mean,
3: he had a he had a platinum disc on his wall that was 75 times platinum. Wow. in his house now wouldn't we all love one of those we? Wow. five times like the whole wall was just thriller platinum discs it was absolutely incredible and he was such a nice guy and we were convinced that you know if we signed to him he'd be remixing everything and making it um you know it was this kind of west coast typey stuff we didn't know what the hell was going to happen and yet when we met him he said, no, man, I'm not going to be changing anything. And I think it's a great record. I think you've done a great job, great production. I'm ready to go. So he and didn't put you we together
1: were, with Arthur Baker then? We, we were put together with Arthur Baker. It
3: people, was before that? Yeah, yeah. by um, Michael Schamburg, who was running um, Factory USA. And that sounds very grand. It was literally Tony Wilson said to me, if you want to put a record out in America, if you can, you do it. And um, Michael Schamburg heard Africa Bambatha, and he thought, and he met Arthur Baker. And he thought, oh, Arthur Baker's the guy from New Order, you know. And it, it was the first time we'd ever written to order. We'd always written from jams and had a song nearly finished. Um, so he was the, that was scary. You know, we, we didn't know him. He, he locked us in a studio and we jammed for like 18 hours and a massive pile of tapes in the corner. And when he turned up and he went, what have you got for me? And we go, oh, we've got this 18 hours of tape here. Could you listen to it and pick some stuff out and we'll work on it And he said, you what, man? Fuck that. And he just pushed the (laughs) tapes over and said, we'll start again. And, you know, we started jamming. um, And that was how we got confusion. And he's been a great friend and a a great mentor, actually, ever since. You know, he's he's a wonderful bloke. I mean, he suffered greatly from being caught in our divorce, which a lot of people have. But, yeah, he was great. And that sort of worked in because... Arthur Baker, we were able to do that independently. And we still had the records coming out on Quest, but we still had the freedom to do whatever we wanted anywhere we wanted to do it. And it was, it was great. And Quincy actually, you know, gave us his blessing. And Quincy was um, instrumental in making New Order huge in, in America. Yeah. What more could you yeah. ask for? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you'd, you'd, we'd, we'd go to America and uh, we'd get a message saying, Quincy wants you to come around for dinner. And we go. Quincy wants us to come. <laughs> us toss us to come wow. for dinner. Is he meant? And you know, you'd go to Quincy Jones's house, and it was like it's not sort of like going to your granddad's. He was just <laughs> so
2: comfortable to be with, and so lovely. And it, it was a bit surreal. Do you know? I've got to say that because I remember when I was touring America, you know, like with Floyd and stuff in the eighties, and uh, and with MTV, and you were always all over MTV. And you were so, and especially with things like the "Touched by the Hand of God" video and stuff. And I know it always gave me this great feeling of pride. Not only that it was just great that you were doing so well there, but it felt like you were having one over on America <laughs> in a way. Absolutely, do you know what I mean? Absolutely,
3: <laughs> there, there was a uh, an aspect. I mean, again, we weren't really playing the game, and yeah. We,
2: we, so, and that was Catherine Bigelow, yes, that video. yeah, I mean, Michael Chamberg. I mean, bloody hell, Jonathan Demme, yeah, yeah. Catherine... Peter, Michael I mean,
3: Shamberg was fantastic at finding these producers that were just on the way up and using them to the best of their ability to get our videos uh, ban- banned on MTV. And we were banned with everything for quite a while. Um, you, you really needed a style culture change before they started accepting our videos. Because every time we delivered one, up till touched by the hand of God, we weren't in it. We weren't in the video, so they wouldn't show it because the band oh, weren't right. in the video.
1: Yeah. In 24 Hour Party People, and can I just say a big shout out to my to one of my best friends, uh, John Sim, who plays Barney in, uh, in, in, in the probably, film. Uh, it comes across a bit that, that, that Blue Monday was be, was almost written before Gillian joined the band. or Was that not the case?
3: Uh, no, Blue Monday wasn't written before Gillian joined the band. No, I mean it was. Um, it came about. Quite simply, actually, Barney had heard a Donna Summer record. Uh, We had the technology, in a way. It was was still programming in binary. So we had the equipment, we had the DMX. So we had the tools to make it. Barney was inspired by um, a drummer if he heard on a Donna Summer song. And he wanted it to sound like a disco record without anybody playing it. And that was the brief that he had for Blue Monday. And then we just built it up and jammed it until, yeah, you got it. I mean, it started off, r- literally, we wanted it to be an instrumental encore that we would play because we didn't want to play encores. We wanted to be able to press a button and an encore would play so we could go and get drunk. We were literally just going to play it at the end of a gig so that the fans would stop moaning so we could get to the dressing room to <laughs> drink beer, you know. Yeah, it was. we literally had
1: to be dragged to do the vocal. One of the um, one of the American... Has no core. There's no yeah. chorus, no chorus in it, no. One of the American bands, I, mean, I, I always I wondered if you was plugged into dance stuff that was happening, you know, that, was, uh, that seemed to be taking over your music. You seemed to be more influenced by, you know, you wanted to be a dance band as opposed to a rock band.
3: Well, I mean, I didn't. I wanted to be a rock band. That's where we got the, uh, I suppose it was a compromise early on. Barney wanted it to be a dance band, and I think Steve was happy to go along with it. I'd say Gillian wasn't particularly vocal in those days. So the thing is, is that I was desperate for us to be a rock band the way we had always been. Um, But the thing is, is that the sequences amalgamated quite well into the way I played. A lot of the melodies that Mm -hmm. I were playing were able to go over the sequences. Uh, And I think, think, you know, if, if you're going to be honest, that over time people's tastes change, people's ideas change. It's just like a marriage, isn't it? You know, you fall out of love because someone just changes. So groups are renowned for that. But yeah, I mean, it was a good fight, and uh, you know, I fought the good fight for rock for a long time, and we actually came up with quite a unique sound. New Order had,
2: but I said, but you you actually won that where people a lot of people fall. You totally won straddling those fences, and that you got the yeah. rock audience and the dance yeah, audience. Yeah, we did. We, you, t- you know, no, I came, mean, you are incredibly lucky, but not alienating one. Or yes, the other. yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, we it, 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 it's funny now. I mean, it, 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 everything's funny now. Believe you me, after we have done for 14 years non-stop literally to this moment we are still fighting so the thing is is that it tends to colour everything rather grey which mm-hmm. is one of the things that I hate about it because yeah. as I said before we should be a pub and go, how did we get away with Listen, that I've, I've, yeah.
1: I've been in the same situation still am I
3: know it's awful it really is awful but I mean you, you know you have to stand up for what you believe in don't you otherwise I don't think anybody would think anything of any of us so the thing is is that yeah, I mean, if you look at a song like Sunrise, I was, I was thinking how lucky I am to have written a bass line like Sunrise, like Agent, H&M, and mm-hmm. you know, all these great bass riffs that have been very lucky. And I've, I've been enabled to do it by the group, you know, without the, the group, I wouldn't have been able to, to do that. So the thing is, is that, and I, it was not, you know, people wanted to change. But you do. It's 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 a very difficult position to be in from a musical point of view. Yeah. But yeah, we did. I think that, you know, if you look at technique and if you look at um, to me the last great New Order song was Regret. Oh, it's a
1: great the- song
2: regret which I, i've got to say i have to say, which is the one when i was still drinking that's the one i played airbase to but that is the last great pop moment i had as an adult in that i remember yes. i was driving down sunset that was played on k-rock mm-hmm. and i literally just turned the car around went to virgin went give me that new order record yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Okay, so I've been, but yeah i'm being yeah, told by know, our producer you, we've, we've got to let you go which is which is which is oh. you know I knew this was going to be a difficult one. I mean because you know I said to guy well not no, no, no. I, difficult not to the get it right all in
3: because I said Mate, I will happily yeah. I will happily give you a number two. Don't forget that you two have, oh, man have been we would very um, uh, helpful to me shall we say in uh, the all through the years let's put it that way oh. you know it's competition oh. as whatever as people and so you know I'd be delighted. Uh, it's, it, it, I, I appreciate the, the the
1: complicated
3: manner of uh, my career.
1: <laughs> but it feels like you've had four lives, your Joy Division, your Hacienda, your New yeah. Order, and now what you're doing now as a solo artist. It's, it's, it's four complete yeah. lives.
3: Uh, I mean, I still get, there's a lot of bitterness around New Order. And as, as she quite just said to me then, as she came out the door, boring. Oh. <laughs> thank you darling um uh, you know it's one of those things so you you can there's so many
1: positive things that you can talk about oh that was good
2: that was it was well it's exactly what you said it was just i mean difficult in that not difficult actually unbelievably easy but yeah it's just too much i think there's gonna have to be a part i think there
1: is i do relate to all that stuff about not you know the the pain of not being able to sit and have a chat in the pub with your old compatriots from the past and talk about things that were so unique to your youth and what you did and what you achieved and you just suddenly decide I'm not going to do it anymore I'm not going to talk to you why do we get like that yeah, You know,
2: it's the I don't know it's the dark side of shit. but showcase, to think
1: I'm going to be like that with you one day I'm going to hate you from afar <laughs> yes yeah, so, so, sooner than you think <laughs> <laughs> well not before next week i hope when we'll have someone else on
2: <laughs> exactly so uh thanks to everyone for listening please leave your reviews tell everyone about it and i don't see we had a big story in the times this week come from our show so you yeah. know so keep it here for the scoops yeah exactly
1: and so um we'll see you next week it's good night from me and good night from them